0: please visit Cambridge at www.cambridge.org. There you can find their entire catalog of books. And, of course, you can buy them there as well. So please visit the press today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. And this week, I'm very pleased to say that we have Marcy Hamilton on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, God Versus the Gavel, The Perils of Extreme Religious Liberty. This is the second edition of this book. The first edition was published in 2005, and it has been released again for reasons that I think Marcy and I will discuss. The topic is very well, topical, I guess is what you'd say right now. Again, we'll talk about this. But let me uh, begin by saying, Marcy, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Could you kick us off by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, I am a law professor at Cardozo School of Law, which is part of Yeshiva University in New York. Uh, Before that, I clerked for uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And... um, I am the only expert that I know of who specializes in religious groups that break the law and uh, came to this uh, through a circuitous and serendipitous route, but uh, the short story is I had a case at the Supreme Court all the religious groups ended up being on the other side, and all of the groups that suffer uh, and fight with religious groups for civil rights and children and women ended up being my allies. So, mm-hmm. I end here. I am today.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's calling. <laughs> Sorry, I guess that's it. Is it is in know, fact yeah, it is it's calling, calling? Oddly enough, yeah. Um, you can do God's work wherever you are, as a professor of mm-hmm. mine used to say. Uh, all right. Well, could you um, tell us why in 2005, and then why reissue "God versus the Gavel"?
1: Well, in in 2005, I originally wrote "God versus the Gavel: uh, Religion and the Rule of Law" because I saw uh, the fact that religious entities were demanding rights they had never had before. And, but they were doing it under cover of a claim that somehow this had always been the regime, that they had always had these super rights. And the result of these demands was putting very vulnerable communities at risk. And I, I felt that people just, Americans, if they understood what was going on, that we could change the culture. It was literally taboo for me to write the book. Uh, because what, essentially what I did is I laid out all of the ways in which religious believers can harm people. Not that they don't do wonderful things for society, and people, they do. But I had collected in a file that originally was labeled religion misbehaving, it turned into <laughs> multiple individual files on prisons and land use and children and women and marriage. Once I had all those files together... Uh, it became clear to me that I just needed to lay out the case. Um, you know, a law professor recently referred to that book as revolutionary in its candor. Uh, my view was, let's just put the
0: facts on the table. Uh, so, uh, so that's where I started. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's an excellent starting point. Uh, and and we said that the book is very topical today because of a particular case, which I think has already been argued. I, again, I don't follow. I, you know, people call it SCOTUS, and that always drives me crazy. The Supreme Court, can we just call it that? Uh, you sure. <laughs> yeah, SCOTUS. I don't think it, what does that mean? It sounds like something, I don't even want to tell you what that sounds like. <laughs> but That's anyway, strange. yeah. Anyway, the case is Sibelius versus Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby, a place that I take my kids sometimes to my hobby stuff. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that case and what the arguments were? And and, and I, think the, I think it's supposed to be, I, I don't know when the, the, uh, the vert decision, decision, is that what you call it? It's right, to right. Well, the, the
1: decision by Supreme Court rule, the Hobby Lobby decision must be rendered by the last day in June. Uh-huh. So, uh, it will be rendered within a
0: month. Okay, so um, tell us about the case.
1: This is a case where the uh, evangelical Christian owners of Hobby Lobby, which is a company that has annual revenues of $3.3 billion, about 23,000 employees, and over 600 stores at this point and still growing. So this is a, a huge for-profit company that sells uh, craft items. And uh, they decided uh, when the... Uh, uh, Affordable Care Act was passed, and it included a requirement of all reproductive health care for women that they didn't want to cover because of their religious beliefs. Certain contraceptions, and their their theory is that uh, some of some contraceptives they say uh, cause abortion. Now, you know, in fact, the medical science says it's not true, but they say it's true, and so they want to not fund as part of the health care plan that they provide their many employees this type of women's medical care so what they did is since they lost in congress and they lost with the president they then went to this very extreme statute which is one of the main elements of god versus the gavel it's the religious freedom restoration act rifra and they invoked rifra which provides for extreme religious liberty rights they say that they have religious liberty rights to choose their health care plan for their employees according to their religious beliefs.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm speechless. The, right. Uh, <laughs> and, and, it,
1: it was novel. It was uh, it was shocking to me. Now, I've been working on these issues. I actually took refer to the Supreme Court And in 1997, the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was reenacted after that. So I've been tracking this this statute from the beginning, in 1993 when it was first enacted. And even I was shocked
0: uh, that anyone would ever make this claim. Uh, But here we are. Yeah. So let's kind of go back. You know, I'm a... uh Actually, I'm a Lutheran. <laughs> I was raised a Lutheran. So let's go back to the text. Uh, right. Lutherans right. like that. What does the Constitution say about religious liberty? And I'll, I'll just give my opinion on that. As far as I know, it's the Establishment Clause, and that's it.
1: it, it well, it's the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause.
0: Okay. So and so, what those are?
1: Well, the, the free exercise clause essentially says that government uh, will not interfere with religion, but it doesn't say that there's an absolute right. Uh, the establishment clause says that uh, the government won't establish religion. It won't. Uh, back religion essentially, but the the beauty of our free exercise clause, at least until Riffra appeared in 1993, was that it was routinely understood to be a right to liberty but not a right to licentiousness Mm -hmm. the framers generation understood you can have too much liberty and they called too much liberty licentiousness Mm -hmm. i just call it extreme Mm -hmm. and uh, until we had this extreme right that gives the believer the right to trump laws in ways never before permitted night before 1993 until then basically the rule was if, uh, there is a law that everybody else has to obey, just because you're religious doesn't mean that you don't have to obey it. So you don't get to abuse children like, you know, if nobody else can. You don't get to break the speeding laws. You have to abide by the land use laws. I mean, it was an ordered society. But government could not persecute religion. Government could not discriminate against any religion or target religion. Uh, and belief is absolutely protected. One of the revolutionary parts of our Constitution is that our beliefs are protected. The government can't tell us what to believe. So we had a very good working system. In 1993, religious groups won by deceiving Congress with a standard that did not restore the prior standard. It's a new standard, and that's what Hobby Lobby is using to try to get a second bite
0: of the public policy apple. Yeah, I'm sorry. Can we, I shouldn't say I'm sorry. Uh, Can we name names here a little bit? And you say religious groups. Who did that? I don't think uh, the Lutheran Church did. Not I maybe don't, don't they did. I don't know.
1: Here is the. And by the way, I'm Presbyterian. I'm married yeah. to a Catholic. Yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> you know, we're, we're Americans. Well, you
0: mass- know, Lutherans. Yeah. You know, Lutherans about as uh, controversial as they get is uh, you know raising the price for items at their bake sales. I mean, that's pre- right. pretty much it. I don't think they do anything bad. So go ahead.
1: So well, he, here is the fascinating part of this history when. Uh, In 1990, when I was clerking at the Supreme Court, they decided the Smith decision. This is a peyote decision in which the Supreme Court said that two drug counselors who used illegal drugs and were fired for violating the law, because after all, they
0: were drug counselors,
1: (laughs) did not have a First Amendment right to get unemployment
0: compensation. As a taxpayer, I'm sort of of hurt that we paid any money – to decide that at all. But I, go ahead.
1: <laughs> so, th- that, and, and to be perfectly frank, at the Supreme Court, as a clerk, none of us thought this case amounted to a hill of beans. Yeah. Um, which basically tells you what clerks know. But yeah. but at the end of the term, the religious groups, when this decision came down, talked to uh, academics, some in particular, particularly Douglas Laycock, and michael mcconnell and others and essentially uh, they decided that this was uh, a political moment of great opportunity and so they went on the attack and they drafted a statute which they called the religious freedom restoration act yeah. and they concocted a standard that had never been applied before and they went to congress and they said the supreme court just abandoned religious liberty We want you to restore religious liberty. In other words, Congress, would you mind overruling the Supreme Court, which is obviously unconstitutional? Mm -hmm. um, But they told them that this has been the standard. And what happens? Congress buys it. They buy into this concept of, oh, wow, we can be the saviors of religious liberty. They don't investigate it. And dozens of religious groups fall in line. Mm. But what's most amazing is the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, falls in line. Mm. Americans United for Separation of Church and State falls in line. It was like there was a mass narcotic applied, and nobody looked at the cases to see is this really what the Supreme Court they had were, done? In the they, were,
0: they were all doing peyote, maybe.
1: I <laughs> I, you know what? It is one of the anomalies, uh, and will give social scientists and political scientists full careers, in my view. Uh, but the, the notion that it was sold as a restoration yeah. of the prior law. Uh, but in fact, was a an extreme standard is uh truly remarkable and so yes, the Lutherans were in the group, the Presbyterians were in ah. the group um and and one of the one of the Uh, You know, we were talking about, is this a calling for me? Well, one one of the wake-up moments for me was when I was litigating the Bernie case um, involving RIFRA and all of the amicus briefs landed on my front step on one day. And these are the briefs that are filed by outside groups informing the court of their views. And all the groups that would be in opposition, this was the day they would arrive. And I'd go, and there's this pile, and I, I had a baby and a little guy, and so I set them aside, and that night I'd go upstairs, and i open them. It's, it's every major religious group mm, in the country amazing. against me. And I realized, witch, was, yeah. hmm, this is an interesting place to be for a mm-hmm. good girl from Wheaton, yeah. Illinois. Right. Um, but um, the truth is, 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 they all fell in line. They yeah. weren't thinking straight. Uh, and uh, and there wa- there was kind of a mass hypnosis that all religious liberty is good, and it took uh, basically me writing God versus Gavel and saying it's time to talk about it because it's taboo in in the academic halls, you weren't allowed to say negative things about religion. You certainly weren't with religious groups. I, I wrote a, an editorial for Christian uh, Christianity Today in which I referred to religious lobbyists,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I was taken to task for that term, mm-hmm. which of course I then started using daily. Um, but the, the point was that here we had a situation where everybody who lined up didn't understand they were undermining their own interests. The real error was made by Congress. The members of Congress who worked very hard to pass laws didn't even blink an eye when there was a law in front of them that was going to undermine every single law in the country. Mm, And they didn't ask any hard questions. Mm -hmm. They all uh, jumped on board. Oh, what a great idea. And so we ended up with RiffRite. Now, since then, the ACLU, Americans United, People for the American Way, uh, and a number of the uh Unitarian Church, a number of groups have peeled off because they've figured out that extreme religious liberty is oppression. Um, but uh the groups that we have still standing today and the groups that are pushing for the Hobby Lobby perspective are uh, on the on essentially the fringes of religious belief, but they are very powerful. And so we've got the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Christian Legal Society, the Beckett Fund, and others. And so largely uh, Catholic and uh,
0: evangelical fundamentalist Christian groups. Mm-hmm. That's a remarkable story. I did not know that. You should write like a New Yorker piece about that or something, or an Atlantic piece. It's a good story. Thank you. It is. Because, I mean, you know, I mean, these people are just like, you know, it's the blind leading the blind after a moment. I mean, they're just doing stuff and not knowing what they're doing.
1: Well, it was. And when RIFR was held unconstitutional and a new bill was introduced to reintroduce it, I started calling groups that summer. My husband called me Paul Revere of the summer. <laughs> and I was just trying to explain to people that this is a really bad law for your interests. Yeah. I had groups like the National Organization of Women hang up on me. Oh, boy. Like, you know, who is this lunatic woman calling me and telling me that religious liberty is
0: bad? <laughs> right, right, Well, so, you know, as, as, somebody who, you know I, I, as somebody who, you know, I guess I'm religious and I have a spiritual program or whatever you call it. If you want to uh, help, um, what was the word again, revive? Is that what they called it? Restore. restore. If you want to restore religion, you should probably try to get people to go to church. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, you know, that seems like a more direct way to do it than going to the Supreme Court, because that's not going to get anyone to church. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, I, the thing one of the things that surprises me about this and it's fascinating history is that there is at least one and maybe two very famous cases. Uh, in American history that almost everybody who's graduated from high school knows about where religious liberty has come up against the requirements of the state and state law. And I'm thinking particularly of Quakers during World War. World War II is what I know about, where, according to their – this is not only Quakers, but also Mennonites and some other people who just basically have a pacifistic religion they could not fight. And then, you know, this issue must have come up.
1: Yes. Oh, it it had come up repeatedly. Yeah, did you talk a little bit about how it's come up repeatedly? Yeah. Well, for the for the conscientious objectors, the uh, the government applied the rule that is the rule that's been applied across the board, which is that uh, the government has the power to create exceptions for religious believers. So you can create an exception for pacifists. In the the uh, federal statutes, and that doesn't violate the Constitution, right I mean one of the questions is whether or not you can voluntarily accommodate religion, and that 's something the government has permitted. Those conscientious objection cases came up in part because groups objected that they weren't covered by the current exemption, and eventually the court said, "Look, if you have a belief that occupies a place in your life that's like." what ordinary religious believers have, you're covered as well. Uh, But, you know, the important thing about the conscientious objection cases, in my view, in the big picture, is that they weren't let out of public service. They were let out of the conducting the war. Um, And so it was not an absolute exemption. There wasn't a constitutional right to an absolute exemption. And there never has been. Um, So, you know from the beginning we've had these exemptions for pacifists but they've still been required to serve the country mm-hmm. during time of war and uh, and that's the kind of rational common sense religious liberty that we've had for
0: over two hundred years and it's the opposite in my view of what we're now living with. Mm-hmm. And what about cases where uh, I'm thinking about observing the Sabbath as a sort of Friday for Friday and Saturday for Jews and then Sunday for Christians and I don't know what other groups do but you know say you're in federal employee and you're asked to work on one of those days what is the been the law or the rule about that?
1: The rule is that if the government has an exception that permits you to take off time uh, and you can take it off for secular reasons you have to be permitted to take it off for religious reasons as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If there's a neutral rule that applies to everybody and nobody gets to take particular time off, um, say you work for a nuclear facility and it's part of your job that you just you simply have to be there at certain times, um, you don't get a religious exemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, so the rule is under the court's standard, not under Congress's, but the court's standard. The rule is that if a law is neutral, it apply; it is not discriminatory, and it's generally applicable. And, and very simply, what that means is it applies the same to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you've got a neutral, generally applicable law, it's constitutional, even if it burdens your religion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, the 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 key here is not whether or not you have you happen to have a burden on religion. The question is whether or not the law is targeting religion or discriminating against it.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. I see. And so another instance that just comes to me is that again this is with uh, um, it's with um, I think I think Mennonites and uh, well I'm not sure exactly, but it should be for all Christians because it's in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, swearing oaths not supposed to do it as a Christian. Jesus said so.
1: Right, yeah. right. Well... There, it's very interesting the way the courts divided up these, these issues. There uh, is the absolute right to believe. There is a very high level of religious speech and the right not to speak. I see. And then there is the right of conduct. Uh-huh. So the, the, that, those cases involving oaths are the very highly protected right to speech. You have a right not to declare an oath mm-hmm. to God or whatever. Um, so, for example, when you're sworn in in court, you can choose to swear on the Bible, or not Mm -hmm.
0: uh
1: so the government can't force you to profess a faith uh can the government tell you however that when you walk into a courtroom that uh you have to uh go through a metal detector yes of course can they tell you that you can't wear a hat in their courtroom yes they can tell you that So uh, the rule is neutral, generally applicable laws are fine, applied evenly to everybody. It's really fundamentally all about fairness. Uh, But at the same time, if the government wants to create an accommodation for a practice, Mm -hmm. then – uh, it can. So actually, one of the biggest uh, ironies of this whole story is that while they're demanding, uh, all these groups are demanding uh, through the Coalition for the Free Exercise of Religion, that Congress pass a law to give them true religious liberty. Let's go back to the Smith case. So the court said there's no constitutional right to use peyote, even if it's in a religious service, uh, in the state of Oregon. Following that case, every state where there is a meaningful number of Native American church members who use peyote passed an exemption. The federal government has an exemption. Mm -hmm. So they were arguing that they would never get religious liberty from legislatures. Mm -hmm. While they're arguing that, the very group that was the case that triggered all of this, that group was getting all the religious liberty it needed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the system works. Yeah.
0: yeah. Mentally works. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's a nice workaround. I mean, everybody's, everybody can go to sleep at night thinking I did the right thing. Right. You're not asking anybody know, to uh, like do anything ridiculous. Yeah.
1: And, and why would you want a court to decide? Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. Why would you want a court to decide whether or not people can use peyote?
0: Yeah, no, I wouldn't. Courts like don't know. All. No, I wouldn't. Well, I just yeah. can do, figure it out. Yeah. I wouldn't like that at all. No, I, w- I wouldn't like that at all. So, um, <laughs> Then in, in light of this history, in light of these various accommodations that have been made for people of various religions, uh, that is both legislative and otherwise, um, can you explain I, – I guess I'm asking you to do something you may have already done. And that is explain exactly how um, RFRA, the, um, the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, what it asks uh, us to do that we haven't done before.
1: Okay, so and here's one of the reasons that RIFRA has not bubbled to the surface of the public mind until recently because it's a bunch of uh, legal mumbo jumbo. So uh, essentially, I
0: can't believe you said
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It is. Um, so uh, essentially, before we had um, here, I'm going to take a sip of water and yeah, see go if I can. sure. Okay. So, before RIFRA, the rule was that if you had a neutral, generally applicable law that applied to everybody, uh, it was subjected to very low-level scrutiny. The court was very deferential to legislatures. If you had a, a law that discriminated against religion... Uh, in that case, it was bumped up to strict scrutiny, and everybody don't go to sleep now, but because this is the this is the most critical part. Um, sadly, uh, it, what the court used to do for those kinds of laws where you had discrimination, they would say we're not deferring to the government anymore. Government, you better show us a compelling interest, and that the government and that the law you passed. Fits the ends that you say uh, are, the, are the compelling interests. So there had to be a compelling interest in what's called narrow tailoring. And, you know, so it was a good system. If, if the government really was acting neutrally, the court did not spend a lot of time concerned about persecution. Can, can but if you, it looked can, just, like it was discriminating, you worry about it.
0: Yeah, can you give us an example of that, of one that, that rises to the standard of strict scrutiny in the religious sort of legislative realm?
1: Yeah, so, so the one case where this has been applied was uh, the case in 1993 involving Churchill Lukumi Babalu IA. <laughs>
0: I'm sorry. I'm sure those people are very serious. Go ahead.
1: Well, they're the Santerians,
0: okay. um, sure they're which is serious.
1: a combination of a kind of um, of Catholic tradition, but also of a Caribbean religion. Okay, good. And one of the things they do during their ceremonies is, uh, out of deep religious belief, is they sacrifice animals. Okay. And uh, they had moved into Hialeah, Florida. And frankly, Hialeah wanted to... Get rid of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, basically... Uh, so they passed a law. The city council passed an ordinance in which they said that sacrifice was illegal.
0: Hmm.
1: But at the same time, uh, they did not outlaw other ways of slaughtering animals. So, uh, so the only people getting in trouble for slaughtering an animal were the ones who were doing it sacrificially. Mm-hmm. But, uh, for example, kosher butchers... We're still okay.
0: Yeah, that was kosher.
1: <laughs> right. Sorry, right. Sorry. Sorry. So, so, so the court said, "Look, this is not a generally applicable law. You have passed a law that's really uh, works in a way that only affects these religious believers. Now, we're going to apply strict scrutiny. Now, here's a really important part of this whole story. In that case, the lawyer for the Church of Lacumie argued, and it was Doug Laycock." argued that uh, the court should apply super strict scrutiny. The court should demand a compelling interest from the government, and it should be the least restrictive means possible for this group. In other words, every law had to be tailored to this religious believer. Wow. The court rejected that standard. They used their old standard. They used the standard they'd always used. And so that was 1993. The court rejects that standard. Five months later, Congress passes RIFRA with the rejected standard. Huh. So the Supreme Court explained yet again they weren't adopting a strict, this crazy standard. And five months later, Congress passes it with all of this... Um, rigmarole about including President Clinton about how wonderful RIFRA is because it restores the standard that had always been in place. But RIFRA creates a universe where not just the discriminatory laws, but every law is now subjected to the compelling interest test on the government and a least restrictive means requirement. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it is a radical change Um, But it is portrayed as we are restoring the true religious liberty
0: of the United States. Right. So to go back to that 1993 case, if the uh, locality would have passed a law that said, "Okay, no butchering of animals anywhere where our writ runs by anybody, then the Supreme Court would have said, yeah, sure, fine.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I, I actually got a call from animal rights groups the case, the case, the, the day the case came down, you know, they were upset about the permitting the practice by anybody. And I said, look, your problem is, is that it's got to be applied across the board. So for PETA to win, as an example of one of those groups, Against that, that religious practice, you've got to persuade governments that they've got to outlaw kosher butchering, too. Right. It's got to be neutral. If the government's going to selectively apply it, the government is going to be under a very heavy burden.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. Yeah, uh, super strict – what did you call it? Super strict scrutiny? Super strict li- uh, scrutiny. Yeah, it sounds like double secret probation from Animal <laughs> House or something. <laughs> so uh, how does – um, so, so thank you for explaining that. And, and, and so can, can you talk, just go back to the um, uh, to the Sibelius versus Hobby Lobby case. What mm-hmm. are the Hobby Lobby people arguing and on what grounds?
1: They are arguing that if they permit uh, four types of contraception, which, by the way, are the types that are provided when a woman is raped, that those four types of contraception should not be covered by their health care plans that are mandated now by Obamacare, uh, because if that's there, they will be complicit in a woman's decision to use it. So they're arguing that it's com- there's complicity, which is a real stretch. So the, the threshold question in all of these cases, in all free exercise cases, is does this law impose a substantial burden on the religious believer? Not a, not a de minimis burden. There must be a substantial burden. And so their first uh, hurdle for Hobby Lobby is they've got to show that including a medical treatment in a health care plan, which will then be used by an employee or not, Uh, and which you'll never know about because of the federal privacy laws, uh, that that substantially burdens their religious beliefs. Uh, But the other thing, and this is why this is such a shocking case, is they're claiming that they are this huge, they're the 135th company in terms of success on the Forbes list.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: They're claiming that their owners' religious beliefs can determine their, uh, corporate practices. And so it's as though there is no corporation. Uh, it's just the, the owners can use the religion and they're, they're saying Hobby Lobby is religious, that the, that this $3.3 billion industry is religious. And so that is the issue that the court is going to have to grapple with the most. Do you extend Refra as extreme as it already is? Do you now extend it to for-profit corporations?
0: I get. I'm kind of speechless about this, because uh, you know, as somebody who's not in the law, this degree of technicality about what are really sort of simple ethical issues is just Agreed. remarkable. Agreed. Um,
1: because yeah, exactly. I mean, in the end, how about just some common sense? Yeah, well, you know, it the thing, thing about this is, to is have that, common sense.
0: Yeah, the the people who at Hobby Lobby, who I'm sure I would like very much, and I have great sympathy for, I'm sure that they are in complicit in all kinds of things of, as Christians that they don't want to be complicit in. I mean, well, every that Christian is. I mean, that's the deal about being a Christian. <laughs> the two best parts of
1: this case are that Hobby Lobby was funding this type of medical care in their health care plan until it became mandatory. And so yeah. they
0: opted. So they well, changed kind of disingenuous the plan. at that point, then. isn't it? Is there an argument to sort of disingenuousness? I mean, you know, you're not really... It's well, if you, and, and if that didn't show a lack of sincerity, yeah. it turns out that their investment funds
1: uh, are heavily into the companies that make
0: emergency contraception. Yeah, uh-huh, right. Well, as I say, there's the complicity when you live in a society that has many dependencies as ours, and that's a zillion dependencies. I mean, you can never act completely in in a, in um. In, in in a in what is the word i'm looking for you can never you never act com- completely in line with your religious beliefs that's just simply impossible and that's not the required standard that's why we have forgiveness um so then what is the government arguing then the government is saying then
1: is um correctly arguing in my view that uh title 7 does not permit religious Employee, it does not permit secular for-profit companies to discriminate on the basis of religion or gender. Um, and so the, what the what the government has to show is that it has a compelling interest in requiring that contraception be a part of healthcare care plans, and, and I think they should win that hands down. Uh-huh. The science is clear that the cost of health care goes down dramatically when you provide a full range of contraception, to women. And, um, so I I think that they're in pretty good shape on proving a compelling interest. They're arguing that Hobby Lobby is not the type of entity that can, uh, raise a refer claim, uh, and, uh, that there really is no substantial burden. Uh, but here's the kicker. If they, if the government loses on substantial burden and they lose on, uh, and even if they win on compelling on showing that there's a compelling interest in providing women full reproductive health care, um, then the government has to show that this is the least restrictive means for hobby lobby. And so there are all sorts of arguments about what is the least restrictive means. And wouldn't you know what oral argument that um, the uh, lawyer for Hobby Lobby, suggested that it would be less restrictive on Hobby Lobby if the government would just pay
0: <laughs> for that medical care. I love these guys. I really do. I love these guys. They give lawyers a great name. Um, <laughs> Agreed. I love these guys. So uh, yeah, how do I hire them? That's what I want to know. The um, so, so I guess you've convinced me that this doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I, that's not legal, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, but what would be a RIFRA claim that, that uh, it, could you imagine a case in which an employer or somebody said uh, under, under RIFRA what, you know, this really does impinge upon my religious liberty. I, I do need an exception.
1: Well, not, not for-profit employers. Um, but I, certainly any time that you have a law that is discriminating against or targeting a religious group, uh, I, I think it's, it's exactly the right thing for the courts to get very uh, to make it very difficult for the government and and but the the truth is is that whenever you have a circumstance like that, the First Amendment's standard, which is the one the court used to invalidate the City of Hialeah's uh, sacrifice mm-hmm. law, um, it's already there. The First Amendment already protects what's needed. RIFRA is a sui generis. Addition, it's just not necessary, and it causes more harm than it helps. And here's the other part of it: the RIFRA has an attorney's fees provision, so that, and this causes uh, many claims to go forward and to be settled that should not be. Uh, so the religious believer demands, this is what I want, and the government then is threatened with having to pay its own lawyers, but also having to pay the lawyers for the other side. So if someone wins with this extreme religious liberty right, then the government has to pay everybody's fees. So uh, it, it is a it's a regime which is not only religion friendly but mm-hmm. it's religion preferential. It mm-hmm. gives them a standard they never had before, and attorneys' fees.
0: hmm. That's a sweet so, deal.
1: Yeah, it is. How, do and I, it, how do
0: I get that? <laughs> it just invites litigation. Yeah. So you talk in the book about, um, this is also very topical, obviously, same-sex marriage, and then uh, mm-hmm. an issue which I think is related to it, and that is uh, polygamy, and even things like, I've got to imagine it's coming sibling marriage and things like this. Um, mm-hmm. that, how does uh, it, Could you talk a little bit about that in the context of, of the, the interaction between uh, religion and the federal law?
1: Sure, uh well, what's happened is is that uh, when in the Bernie case, when the court declared the federal rifra unconstitutional, uh, the conservative religious groups fanned out to the fifty states and they persuaded some of the states to pass their own state rifer and so we now have about half the states with this uh, the the state rifras under their own standard. So, you know, now it is possible to apply this extreme religious liberty to state law as well. And so, if you have a state where you have a, a state refer, and uh, you have someone who is engaging in child abuse or polygamy or uh, underage marriage, uh, they can now raise this rifra as a defense. And, uh, and it's raised all the time. Uh, and and are ra- the RFRA argument is raised in clergy sex abuse cases routinely uh, for religious groups to
0: avoid liability. Hmm. That's interesting. So could you tell us anything about some of those cases? I don't know. I haven't read about any of them. Um, so so well, let me just give an example, sort of hypothetical. If I like, uh, you know, I have one wife, if, if I decided in a fit of insanity, I wanted another. Um, and I got, I, I had two wives, and I, and, you know, the, the state of Massachusetts said, well, we can't do that. And I said, well, no, it's my, part of my religion.
1: Exactly. Well, in most states, uh, in most states, and routinely, uh, the, uh, the religious right to marry multiple spouses has been rejected I see. Uh, over history. Uh, we haven't seen these cases work out because we really don't have religious polygamy groups in every state that are active right now. But uh, we do have the Cody Brown case. And the Cody Brown case is, uh, of course, this is the... Um, uh, sister Wives, uh, as disgusting as that title is, the Sister Wives uh, reality show, and represented by uh, Jonathan Turley, they argued for a religious right to have multiple wives in Utah. Levite marriage, yeah. And and they won. And uh, so that case is still pending. It, it's being appealed by the state of Utah, but the uh, essentially... You know, They're making a lot of different arguments, but the main argument is that if this is their religious belief, uh, they should be left alone, and, and where's the harm?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And the critical part of that case is that the state of Utah did a terrible job in proving the harm. So that... It's not just Riffra that's problem. Our whole culture is doused with deference to religious bad behavior, mm-hmm. and in the, and it's for political reasons. And in the state of Utah, at the highest levels, they have turned a blind eye uh, to bad behavior by uh, polygamous groups for decades. And uh, in in this case, they're litigating, defending their state law banning polygamy. They didn't even put in the evidence hmm. of how harmful polygamy is inherently to women and children.
0: Hmm. That's so, yeah, that's amazing. So, talk a little bit about um, uh, uh, same-sex couples and uh, same-sex marriage and how that relates to religious freedom in the federal law.
1: Well, this this has been uh, it's been a gift that these issues have bubbled up at exactly at the same time the Supreme Court is considering whether to expand RIFRA. To corporations. Right now, um, we have uh, one state, Mississippi, has passed a state RIFRA which is intended to be applied so that businesses can refuse to offer service to same sex couples. Hmm. Homosexuals. A similar bill was uh, introduced in Arizona uh, several months ago, but it was even more extreme. The, The bill in Arizona would have permitted discrimination by religious believers on any ground, gender, race sexual orientation, et cetera. And that bill uh, was so extreme that the chamber of commerce came out against it. Uh, The NFL, major league baseball, uh, you know, how do you end up in a universe where you have the NFL needing to comment on religious liberty? Yeah, that is weird. Right. It's because we have reached the shoals of extremism and Mm -hmm. fanaticism. And in that case, uh, in, in Arizona, Essentially, Jan Brewer, the governor, was put under tremendous pressure to veto it, and she finally did. Uh Uh, But it's not because the Alliance Defending Freedom and the conservative groups in opposition to homosexuals didn't lobby heavily. They expended tremendous resources. Uh, But what we learned there is something that I think was good for the whole country to see, which is that there is a limit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be a limit, and these uh, the view that if you're a business owner, you can turn someone away at the door because of their sexual orientation uh, is, first of all, it's it's it morally disgusting. But in, at the same time, it's just back to the Jim Crow laws, and the way the Arizona law was set up, the you know we have plenty of uh, race based religions in the United States. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center tracks all of them, mm-hmm. and uh, there are plenty in Arizona. So it wouldn't have been limited to sexual orientation, as bad as that is. You could have had uh, bakeries that when a black person walked in said, hey, we, we don't serve blacks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, so these are scary times. And I, I think some, one of the things I think that people forget is that discrimination and slavery in the South were based on religion. Mm-hmm. it was deeply religious and uh so if we open the door to rel- to religious based discrimination it's uh going to go ba- it's going to take us back to some very very uh bad
0: times in the united states mm-hmm. just to generalize a little bit are there any cases so again i'm a layman and i know that there's this thing a place of public accommodation right that's mm-hmm. a legal term you got to serve anybody pretty much and then yes. there's also a kind of parallel thing in the employment world You you can't just fire somebody because they are, you know, have this characteristic they can do nothing about, right? Right. Right. Okay. So, So I guess my question is, are there any exceptions to those rules? Is there any place of public accommodation where somebody says, well, I just can't serve people like this because it's against my religion. I just can't do it.
1: Uh, not really. Now, f- under the federal anti-discrimination laws, you have to have a business that has over a certain number of employees. So, you know, so the tiny businesses are not affected by the federal anti-discrimination laws. But the state uh, anti-discrimination laws tend to apply to everybody. And and, and as they should. Yeah. Uh, we, the reason that our Free market works so well is that we judge products based on the product, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and and one of the things that I think is so troubling about this entire universe is that I now have to know, for example, that Chick Fil A, uh, their owner, is uh, anti-gay. Yeah. You know, I, I really liked Chick Fil A. <laughs> And and now, every time I pass it, I won't go in. Um, I I just, and I I didn't want to know that Hobby Lobby donates against their
0: female employees because,
1: frankly, sometimes AC Moore doesn't have everything I want. Yeah,
0: Hobby Lobby is okay, actually. I take my kids there, like I said.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a problem. If you start freighting your economy with religious identity, you start dividing the entire country, we will become balkanized. And so the, the motivation, really, for, for God versus the gavel this time around is because I have a sincere and deep fear that we are moving toward religious division like we've never seen it before. And I would really like to see the courts... And the legislatures pull this back to common sense and let us go back to being Americans Mm -hmm. and not have to wear our religion on our sleeves in every aspect of our lives.
0: Mm -hmm. So I understand the business about uh, public accommodation. Are there any cases uh, in employment law where somebody says, "Okay, I have this employee, but they've started to practice this religion. And even though it does not interfere at all with the performance of their job, they cannot work here.
1: Those employees are protected. Yeah. Okay. Those employees are protected, and and actually, that's one of the issues with Hobby Lobby is those female employees cannot be discriminated based on re, against based on religion. Mm-hmm. So if their religion permits them to use emergency contraception, that health care plan is actually discriminating against them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I see what you mean. Now there are some other cases of discrimination, not necessarily uh, religiously based, that I think people would find fascinating, and I, I don't know whether they're called discrimination or not because it's not like. Other folks are beating down the door. I'm here at Smith College. It's a women's college. (laughs) They don't have men here. Well, they do have men here. I'm here. But uh, they don't admit men, I don't think. What does the law say about that now?
1: Well, the the law has permitted that uh, with, uh, and that's really kind of an equal, that's equal protection. Uh And uh, the court has given more latitude for, you know, discriminating between the genders, and not necessarily discriminating against. And if there's a strong reason for keeping uh, an organization as single gender, the, the courts have been more willing to permit it. But also Smith is a private school. Yeah, right. Absolutely. You know, so there's a difference between what the private schools and the public schools can do. The public schools, uh, for example, the Virginia Military Institute, was not permitted to, to remain uh, same gender. They had to open it to women. And so um uh, the the real point is that there are private entities and there are public entities in terms of education. Yeah. Um but you know if you're looking for interesting uh cases involving uh those who discriminate, you know, the prisons are filled with prisoners who are who are believers in either uh, extreme Islamicism and um, extreme terrorist positions, or uh, are white supremacists? Mm-hmm. The white supremacists are run through all the prisons. And one of the things that RIFRA does, and it's, uh, its its statute that now applies to the state prisons, which is the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, our LUPA. If, if you've got RIFRA and our LUPA in place, the prisons now have to prove that they have a compelling interest and they are using the least restrictive means when they use security practices against white supremacist gangs. Wow! And that's a burden they shouldn't have to bear, and they never had to bear that burden before the Riffer came into
0: place. Wow. <laughs> <That's> not, <laughs> that is not where I... Yeah, I don't want a lot of my tax dollars spent on that. Um, <laughs> but, sorry. <I laughs> and, yeah.
1: Uh you know prisoners have a lot of time to think up a lot of interests
0: mm-hmm.
1: both religions and practices. there's a lot of litigation, and uh it is the taxpayers that are that are footing it
0: mm mm-hmm. now so then
1: uh is is it uh, how does RIFRA go away? Well, the only way for Riffer to go away, well, there are two ways. One, uh, and I filed an amicus brief uh, for a number of groups in the Hobby Lobby case arguing it's unconstitutional. It was unconstitutional in 1997 when uh, I won on behalf of Bernie Texas the case. It's still unconstitutional, um, and the court should address that. But the issue's not being raised. So uh, the only thing it would be for Congress to repeal it. And frankly, uh, I, I suppose there must be some concern that Hobby Lobby may well not come out the way that they want it to, mm. because Orrin Hatch, uh, the senator from Utah, who sponsored along with Ted Kennedy the original refer, has now come out. Ted
0: Kennedy. Oh yeah. Holy yes. cow!
1: Ted Kennedy and Orrin <laughs> Hatch ever are religious. They
0: couldn't. Throw. Any piece of legislation that is that is sponsored by two guys like that.
1: Right, right. You <laughs> know, it's not going in the right direction. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and signed by Bill Clinton, that, that those three would do anything for religion. It's mindless on these issues. Um, and, and by the way, uh, the the biggest fan of refer in the Clinton administration was our current Justice Kagan. Oh boy. Yeah. So uh so we have uh we have all of this uh pro religion in uh in Washington, but Hatch this week announced that if Hobby Lobby goes the so called wrong way, he will then propose a constitutional amendment. Wow. So uh right now Riffer could be repealed. If the Riffer standard became a constitutional standard, uh that would be the end of the ballgame. Wow yeah and that's when I would move
0: to yeah, say right uh, you know the Caribbean. So Kagan supports Kagan likes rifra
1: Kagan is uh, in favor of extreme religious liberty. Uh, in the case that permitted discrimination by religious groups against their own clergy, uh, she wrote only, there were only two of them that said this, but she and Justice Alito said that uh, religious groups should have autonomy from the law.
0: Wow. Very scary. Yeah. Well, she's an academic, you know. (laughs) <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I, I, I can't trust them. And frankly, yeah. this whole rift for movement has been fueled by academics yeah. who didn't do their homework yeah. and have uh, been there, have hit, hidden the ball yeah. all the way down the line.
0: Yeah, yeah, I see that. Well, it's kind of scary, actually, now that, I, you know, I'm glad, really glad we talked to you because I didn't, I wasn't really <laughs> aware of the importance of, of these things. And as, again, someone who, you know, I, I am religious myself, but just the, the thing that I come away with is why aren't all these deeply religious people concentrating on their religion? and and not so messing around is, with this stuff.
1: I, I completely agree. And, you know, one of my heroes in the United States is John Diulio, who's a, a professor at Penn who has really worked hard to try to find a middle ground. And what he's really trying to find is a way for people to help people through religion. That's what we should be doing. Uh, and really, uh, the reason I'm in this uh, game or or in this uh, maelstrom where I've got bishops calling me names, and I I mean, uh, it's not a comfortable place to be, but it's because all the vulnerable that are being hurt, it's the children and the women, uh, it's the disabled, uh, all of them are being now hurt by religious liberty, and I really would like to see us go back to common sense and Let's see religion turn back toward its true ministry, which is you know, service to the poor.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, like I say, you know it's not complicated. You just I mentioned the Sermon on the Mount. You just have to read the Sermon on the Mount, and it's cowboy simple. It says love your enemies. It says love sinners. It says if yeah. somebody asks for your shirt, give them your coat. It says yeah. you know, this is not complicated stuff. So the right. people who work for Hobby Lobby who are going to use this contraception, if those people feel like they're doing kind of the wrong thing, they shouldn't harass them. Of course, they should try to help them. Precisely. Help them
1: through and this. Surely, they can certainly offer all sorts of services. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but I actually think the ugliest part and uh, in, in the, the nub of fully understanding what's going on here, and it's not just Hobby Lobby, it's Conestoga Woods and, and many other uh, uh, groups. The, the issue here is that this is contraception. That if a woman has been raped, it's it's the. Yeah primary way of not becoming pregnant from a rape. Who is going to expend all of these millions of dollars on litigation and public policy trying to keep those women from making their own choice, which is constitutionally protected? What we are seeing here is the powers that be are roaring they're grabbing a standard that they never had before they're going for it and as usual who's going to lose it's the women and the children that's
0: just the way history works yeah that's it's it is sad you know i mean because they become involved you know it's like a friend of mine says well not a friend of mine i sometimes say this myself would you rather be right or would you rather be happy I'd rather be happy, thanks very much. And um, that involves, uh, you know, kind of being kind to people, not telling them they're wrong and shoving it in their faces, you know, that sort of thing. (laughs) So anyway, Marcia, this has been absolutely fantastic. We should just have you on again just to talk about the book after the decision comes out. That would be really yes. fun.
1: We'll, I will be revising it actually, yeah. and uh, so it's only out in e version now. It will be out in paperback in the fall with a full discussion of Hobby Lobby.
0: I bet. I bet it will. So, are you going to like? Do you get to go sit in or anything like that, and sit in the gallery and listen as the? This, um, this, this no, way? no. I will
1: be. Uh, the beauty of of this day and age is that
0: uh, the the cases are released. Um,
1: simultaneously so the minute it comes Uh, down i'll be reading it and then i'll be writing about it and posting my views on my blog almost immediately i think
0: i think you've inspired me i'm going to write an amicus brief would they take pencil because i just have like a pencil here and a piece of paper i'll just like send it (laughs) off to them
1: oh no oh no if you're not willing to spend about a thousand dollars to have your brief printed you're out Yeah.
0: okay i yeah all right okay fine that's discrimination (laughs) against people who don't make any money like me um but that's all my fault that I don't make any money I'm in the wrong business. I should be I should be a, I should be a, a lawyer for hobby lobby is what I should oh, be. Oh, there you go. Oh, truly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> truly. So, Marsha Hamilton has been wonderful uh, talking to you. We've been talking to Marsha Hamilton about God versus the gavel, the perils of extreme religious liberty. Marsha, let me close the interview with our traditional final question on the New Books Network and that is, what are you working on now?
1: My next book is going to be uh an inside look at the culture wars and uh it's uh, it's similar uh it, it's basically a memoir of battling every religious group in the country and uh there have been some choice things both said and written uh about the work that I've been doing and uh the, apparently I'm a bitter woman and uh sounds so, bitter to me I, I'm not. And, and, and actually, uh, I, I think the world needs to see that the religious forces that I'm writing about in God versus the gavel are really at base bullies. Yeah. And uh, so I'm really writing an anti-bullying book about religion. Mm.
0: Well, that sounds really interesting. I hope you can come on the show when you are done with it. Thank you. All right. Good enough. Let me tell everyone again for the third time we've been talking with Marsha Hamilton about God versus the gavel, the perils of religious liberty. Marsha, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And let me say to everyone who listens to the uh, mini-podcasts on the uh, NewBooks Network with its 99 channels, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you have a great week.